You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome back to the Backcountry Rookies Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Riker, and this month is Muzzleloader March. And in true Backcountry Rookie style, we want you to learn something new through this series. The idea is to introduce hunters who have limited or no experience to muzzleloaders to the idea that they can add options to their big game season. Or maybe we teach some new tricks to the hunters who have been chasing game for years. We plan to take you through the history of muzzleloading with Ethan Yazel from the National Muzzleloading Rifle Association, or NMLRA, and he's also the host of the Muzzle Blast podcast. Our friends at Go Hunt are going to walk us through how you can increase your draw odds or add more opportunities to your season, as well as talk about the different regulations in each state, and each state is different. Finally, we're going to discuss modern muzzleloader options with Luke Horrock from Arrowhead Rifles and discuss load development and the options that you might have for that. Hopefully you take something away from this series and it drives you to get out and chase some big game in a new way this year. Enjoy the series. As promised, this is Muzzleloader March. So all things muzzleloader, we're talking about all kinds of good stuff. Today, I've got Ethan Yazel on, and he is with the National Muzzle Loading Rifle Association. And I thought Ethan was going to be the perfect guy. He is the perfect guy to bring on here. And I wanted to talk about the history of muzzle loading. Um, oftentimes, in today's world, we'll go into the Cabela's or the Sportsman's Warehouse or the whatever, pick your, pick your shop, and we see all these great muzzle loaders on the, on the shelves but there's so much behind them, right? And Ethan is the guy that's going to talk about all of that. How do we get to where we're at today in 2021 where we can just go buy these phenomenal, almost rifle-like muzzleloaders mm -hmm. from the point where gunpowder was introduced? I don't know any of that history. This is certainly not my area of expertise. So I brought the expert on. Ethan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is real exciting. Absolutely, man. I'm excited to have you on because this is so Ethan wrote up a bunch of notes and he got some stuff ready for me because like I said, I, this isn't my area of expertise. And I was blown away with the amount of, of detail that he went to with his notes. And, and we're going to cover that stuff. So not only do you work at the National Muzzleloading Rifle Association, but you also have your own podcast called yeah. Muzzle Blast. Yep. Um, do me a favor, Ethan, and just kind of quickly talk about the the National Muzzle Loading Rifle Association, what you guys do for muzzle loading, and then let's talk about muzzle blast, and then we'll get into the history of these bad boys. Yeah, so the National Muzzle Loading Rifle Association, or the NMLRA, is our acronym. It's a lot easier to say because it is kind of a mouthful. It is a mouthful. It started back in the 1930s, right as we were in the Great Depression, and there were a group of guys in Southern Ohio that just were fascinated with muzzleloaders. I mean, by that time we already had smokeless, we had cartridge rifles and everything, but these guys were fascinated with these old ignition systems and how to make them as accurate as possible. And they got together and for a few years just had some shoots, um, just a couple guys on a farm. And then it just started to grow and grow with the interest. And 
fast forward now nearly 80 years and we are a national organization. We have like 12,000 members nationwide and we've gone through the waves. I mean, the bicentennial was huge. We had a little dip after that of muzzleloading interest. And now with all of the bushcraft and kind of the traditional lifestyle stuff, muzzleloading is kind of back up into a forefront. So we do as much as we can all the time to preserve and talk about muzzleloading history. We have a ton of different programs. Our Long Hunter Society keeps track of every muzzleloading record that we get submitted to us. So that might be something for anybody out there that's interested in hunting with their muzzleloader and has taken a nice trophy with it to check out that program. We publish a book every few years with the updates of that. We host a bunch of traditional craft and muzzleloading related classes because like you said, you can go into a Cabela's or a Bass Pro now, but for the majority of muzzleloading's time in the world, it's all been kind of handmade and, and made by these real artisans out there. And so we work with them to share their knowledge and share that information. And then Probably one of the biggest things that we do is each year we hold two national black powder and muzzleloading competitions where the best black powder marksmen come and compete against each other to take the national titles of black powder and muzzleloading marksmanship. So it's a it's a small community, but there's a lot happening with it. Strong community, no doubt. Oh, yes. What's it take to win a black powder marksmanship competition? What, like, oh, man. What is, how does that go down? What, how, how, tell me about the competition a little bit. It takes a ton of practice because you have, you're, you're seeking accuracy like you can get with a modern precision rifle with a muzzleloader and with, with that ignition and parts that are all designed several hundred years ago. I mean, there's modern technologies in the barrels and that speed up locks and things, but you're still not at this modern, you know, pull the trigger, boom, it's there system. I mean, we have a ton of different disciplines from long range out to 500 to a thousand yards with a muzzleloader and black powder. There's pistol, there's offhand, which is just standing rifle, shotgun. But when you get into kind of the precision stuff, you're aiming at, you know, the X ring, which is the size of a, a quarter or a dime, depending on your target at various distances from 25 to 500 yards. And you're aiming to get all within that that X-ring. That's what it takes right now. Earlier, kind of mid 1900s, you know, it was real flexible on that. I mean, out of a 10 shot target with a hundred point max, you know, you could probably get in to the top seat in a, with a 90, low 90s, 92, 93. But now you got to be in that hundred and, you know, five and up X's to really be a hard contender. Now it doesn't mean that you can't have fun with it and still compete and have fun, but for those national titles, for those big trophies, you got to be on your A game. Wow. That's awesome. I didn't realize that it had come to that level of, I mean, this is like precision rifle series type of stuff, except with, with muzzleloader. With muzzleloaders. Yeah. You're there with a flintlock and with a cap lock, you know, and you're not in, you know, traditional garb for those high precision matches, but you're using the same guns that basically won America its freedom with, you know, a modern cut barrel, but you're using that same technology. Yeah. That's super cool. So as you were talking about that, I was sitting here thinking, I wonder if these guys are all dressed up in like the leathers and the, the coonskin caps, you know, and yep. they're doing all of these traditional backwoods style muzzleloading stuff, or if it's d- developed to that level where you're, it's not, you know, we're not doing right. that. Is there both? Well, th- there is both. So our, our range at the Walter Klein range in Southern Indiana, it's a mile, the firing line itself, which is where a lot of the precision shooting takes place. It's about a quarter of a mile long. 
And that's where you have everybody dressed, you know, in modern clothes. People are wearing shooting jackets. You have gloves. You have glasses and things set up to, you know, really make sure that you're zoned in on the target. And then on the other side of our range is back in the woods. We have woods walks where you're up on the trail. There are cabins set up and things where you're shooting at. There's some paper targets, uh, but a lot of it is just reactive silhouettes and things. And that's where you find a lot of people dressed in period clothing. Now, because we're in the eastern side of the country, we don't have a whole lot of the buckskins when it comes to the traditional clothing anymore. A lot of it's, you know, real colonial era America crossing the Appalachia Mountains there. Um, And out west, you still see a lot of the buckskins and the leather, kind of the fur trade area. But the... It's it's funny because the dress has changed, uh, but the the rifles haven't so much. <laughs> yeah, man, we could probably do a whole podcast on that. So let's. I can talk a, for days. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so you have your own podcast called Muzzle Blast, and without a doubt, you cover a lot of that type of topic on Muzzle Blast. Yeah. Um, so why don't you inter- let's hear a little bit about muzzle blast and if listeners want to know more about that competition type of stuff i'm, I'm certain that they can go over and check out that podcast and, and yeah. hear some of those details so muzzle blast the podcast is actually a spinoff of our magazine so we've been publishing a monthly muzzle loading magazine since i think about 1938 was the first issue and that's the one of the main publications i mean it's consistent month after month that whole time we've been publishing that. So what I wanted to do was bring that, you know, consistent consistency and that quality into kind of a new medium with the podcast. I love podcasts myself and it's just a great way to talk to and hear from people that you don't normally hear from. I mean, I'm able to get artisans, industry representatives and companies on the phone to talk for, you know, half to 45 minutes where asking them to write an article to put in the magazine might be a little you know, too much for the busy schedule of modern, of the modern muzzleloading industry. It's kind of funny to think about it that way, but it's the truth. I mean, it's, it's real fast paced. So we get everybody from, uh, we had representatives from GoX and Swiss black powder on, we talk about, we had Luke Horak on talking about his modern muzzleloaders. We just had rice barrels on talking about their barrel manufacturing for the modern muzzleloading shooter or the traditional muzzleloading shooter. So we try to cover from the muzzleloaders themselves, the competition, the accoutrements, which are all the accessories that go with your traditional muzzleloader, and then everything in between. So it's a it's a really weird, wide variety of topics. So if one episode isn't for you, the next one just might be. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I think is cool. And I, I since I was introduced to you through Luke Horak, um, and in fact, I listened to the show that you recorded with him. That's I, the, some of it doesn't pertain to me and that's how yeah. podcasts are, right? That's, yeah. I'm certain there's a lot of people that look at some of my topics and they're like, no, I don't care about that. I'm not listening to that one, but you guys do bring a big variety and it's something that is, was good for me to be introduced to this, to muzzle loading. Um, so, okay, cool. So that's muzzle blast. I'd like to jump into the history of muzzleloaders yeah. now, if you if you uh, if you're ready for that. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to let you just kind of roll with it. Some yeah. of this history stuff, it, it goes way way back. I want to touch briefly on it, just so that we have sort of a baseline of where muzzleloaders came from. Um, and then once we get into some of the modern, more modern day stuff, we'll we'll dig in pretty hard. But if you would just 
start out with that history that you had sent me the yeah. invention of and some of the first you know muzzle loaders that came out and then some of the different ignition systems and and then we'll work our way up to today yeah so i'm not sure the exact date and i don't know if we even have one but somewhere in early time the chinese invented black powder and we all kind of I think a history class touches on that some because it was such a dynamic technological revolution. I mean, it kind of started out as fireworks, but then they quickly figured out that they could develop basically tubes with a solid end and turn the black powder into propellant for a cannon or a mortar like we would think of today. And you can still see basically that same design uh, at a lot of state houses and museums because that was used up into and through the Civil War here. Um, so that design started with the Chinese and with their black powder, which they used cast tubes made of brass or iron, and then just loaded them through the muzzle, just like you would see in kind of our contemporary mortars. And that was really the first of the muzzle loading industry, so to speak. And they were just like a cannon, like you think of when you think of a cannon, they were ignited with a wicker fuse, but an industry and kind of the minds of people started working on speeding that up to make it more accurate and more on demand like we do with anything. So sure. in, the, in the 1400s, you start to see the development of the matchlock. And I, I really encourage anybody interested in this history to look up some of the uh, photos and the drawings of these early locks, because you can think of a modern rifle and you can kind of imagine it. But if you haven't seen or you aren't familiar with these early technologies, they're really neat. And to think of these people figuring them out by windows and candlelight without any modern machinery is really fascinating to me. So the modern match or the match lock was developed in the early 1400s and this created a mechanical element to go with the fuse. So the match lock holds a fuse in kind of a, a little arm on the side of your gun. And when you pull the trigger, it drops that fuse into a pan primed with a little bit of black powder. And that priming pan is what we refer to that as, then uh, that spark travels into the barrel through a, a hole in the side of the barrel, and you're, we call that a touch hole, and that lights off the main charge in your barrel. So this is where we started to see the first concepts of a muzzle-loading rifle in use, something that an individual person could carry. And then towards the late 1800s, um, the matchlocks started to change a little bit. In Germany, I think this was, I think the 1460s or so, a group of German gunsmiths figured out how to rifle a barrel. So every barrel until the mid to late 1400s was smooth, like we think of a, of a shotgun. So we, we refer to those as smooth bores. So the bore of the, of the barrel is smooth. But they figured out, the Germans figured out how to rifle these barrels and start getting that twist in the barrel so your projectile could be more accurate over greater distances. And this is where we start to see real German industry dominance. I mean, and you see that all through history, but they started to figure out this barrel rifling and that just kind of set the spark for them on figuring out accuracy and just the mechanics of shooting. The Germans are famous for their Jaeger rifles, which were their just really beautifully made and really technically exquisite muzzleloading hunting rifles that uh, if you're interested in, in the history of hunting, you need to check out the Jaeger rifles. They're beautifully designed and the artwork that goes on them and goes with them is just, is just fascinating. <laughs> And that's the translation, right? Jaeger is hunter. Yes, that's yeah. yeah Jaeger yeah, okay. is the hunter. Yeah. So yeah. that rifle was created, or that muzzleloader was created for a hunting purposes, for hunting. not a military, yeah. 
none of that stuff hunting at this time as far as i know uh, and the historian out there can probably correct me but at this time and even up until our revolutionary war and our civil war the military firearms were all smooth bores it was a lot faster and a lot cheaper to make them smooth and when you think about war and battle at the time you were dealing with these large battlefields with volley fire and everything. They weren't real concerned about individual accuracy, especially at scale up until our revolutionary war is where that started to really play in our okay. favor. Okay. Yeah. Good point. So in the 1500s, then you have the wheel lock being developed and we've at this point, we've totally gotten rid of the fuse and we're starting to use metal and iron to create a spark like you would, um, to light a fire with your flint and your striker. So the wheel lock is similar to the match lock where you have an arm that has, um, well, here, I'll, I'll read my notes. That'll probably be, it'll probably be better that way. Um, when the trigger is pro pulled, a coil spring turns a rough edged steel wheel against a piece of iron pyrite, creating sparks to ignite the priming pan and then the main charge. So if you can look at a picture of a match lock, you're just kind of replacing the outer face of the matchlock with a new technology. You still have the arm dropping and that iron pyrite hits that wheel, lights your priming pan and then lights your main charge. Kind of like a fire starter or something like that almost. Yes. It's throwing yes. a spark, it's hitting that propellant or that whatever is flammable and then or yeah. that powder at that point. Okay. Exactly, you're just using that as a, in small scale. And if you read some of the journals and things of the hunters and the, the, the folks in the military at this time, there were times where they could light fires with their equipment because it's the same thing. I think most of the time they would have pulled out their, their flint and steel and done it that way because at that time that was a skill that you just had to have. Everybody knew how to do it. Yeah. But you could still start a fire with these ignition technologies to keep yourself warm. So in the, in the 1600s, then you have the development of the flintlock, which is one of the things that people really think about when they see a muzzleloader, where you have the, what we refer to as the hammer or the cock holds a flint and it strikes against a hardened piece of iron or steel called the frizzen. And that captures that spark, drops it into your priming pan, and then ignites your charge. And these were the things that when you think of kind of the American revolution and the American long rifle, this is the ignition system that we're using at this time. And to kind of tie into the German influence of the history of it, the Americans when we started developing the American long rifle in Virginia, Pennsylvania, kind of along the East coast there, we were heavily influenced by those German builders because many of the builders, especially early on in America were German and they had trained under those German masters. So they brought that over. And when you look at early long rifles, you really see that German influence. A lot of times the triggers are the same where you have a set trigger, like the traditional Jaegers did to get that real fine trigger pull. And you had a nice comb. I mean, Everything about the American long rifle to me makes it just the perfect gun. I, I can pick up any modern rifle and it's not going to be as comfortable as an American long rifle is. And they just got that really down. I'm a real fanboy of the American long rifle in that I could shoot a long rifle all day, every day. And it's just so comfortable. The, just the shape of everything really works well. Um, so, but we took that German influence and really started to change it up because we had some longer distances and we were striving to make them even more accurate. We started to create longer rifled barrels, similar to the Germans, but we made them longer. I mean, you taught, you see some original rifles were nearly six feet long and yeah, that's a yeah. really long rifle, especially compared to today. 
Uh, and that just gave everybody using them the accuracy and the dependability that they needed to hunt and survive on the frontier. I mean, like we carry our phones, I think most of us do all day, every day. These guys and the men and women, they were carrying their rifles. I mean, it was, they lived and died by these and they, they knew the ins and outs of them. Uh, so up until the 1800s, the mechanism needed to ignite the priming powder or they needed the priming powder to ignite the main charge. But once you get into the early 1800s, as we start developing some industrial might, as we think of kind of in a modern sense, the percussion lock was developed and then which required the percussion cap. And that was, it took a while. I think the, the 1820s, 1810s, 1820s, and when you started to see that developed, but it wasn't widely adopted until the 1840s. So if you've seen Jeremiah Johnson or the Mountain Men movie, the traditional Hawken is kind of the, the rifle that everybody pictures up for that time. That's your traditional percussion or cap lock muzzleloader. Yeah. So the, you still have the, the, a hammer like you do on a flintlock, but now that hammer strikes that cap, which is placed onto a nipple and a drum, which is attached to the barrel. So now the ignition of your main charge is all internal to the mechanism of the muzzleloader. You don't have to worry about your pan getting wet or your flint not striking. As long as you have a good cap, and your barrel's dry, your charge is going to go off. And it makes it a lot more reliable, um, but you are now relying on the ability to get those caps. So it's kind of a, a nod to the growing settlement of the United States transitioning from uh, a wild frontier to kind of a colonized space, when you, especially as you get into kind of the fur trade in the Rocky Mountain era. That's cool. I mean, it's, that, that, I think that's really, really cool. I think if you're interested in history or the history of hunting, muzzleloaders are a, a neat niche to get into because it's so tied to history and the industry and the uh -huh. engineering of it. It's kind of a, it's a great intersection for all of it. That makes it really interesting for me. So is the percussion cap, is that sort of primitive rifle primer? Yes. Same thing. Same thing, essentially. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And the same technology used to make the rifle primers is used to make those priming caps. I mean, right now in March, 2021, it's really hard to find rifle primers for reloading or for muzzleloaders. And it's uh -huh. the same thing for those percussion caps. They're kind of, they're, they're, they're sisters. They're kind of hand in hand right now. Okay. Gotcha. Same companies make them. Does federal same make percussion yep. caps, federal yep. and yep. CCI, CCI. Remington. Okay. Yep. 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 Okay. They make, uh, I mean, the, the number 10s are kind of the, the musket caps is how you look at them. You've got number 11s, which are kind of the pistol revolver caps and the percussion caps for rifles. And then the, the 209 primers are what's used for a lot of modern um, inline muzzleloaders, which yeah. you'd use to kind of reload modern shotgun shells. Yeah. And we'll get to that. We'll get to the Yeah, yeah, we'll get stuff, to that. Because yeah. that's a significant change also. So, yes. um, okay. So now we're mid 1800s, right? Yeah. So when you get into the 1830s, since you've got this percussion cap, um, people start figuring out or trying to figure out how to shoot more than once. So up until this point, your reload speed is really up to you how far you can, how fast you can drop that charge and your projectile down and ram it down that barrel. But in the 1830s, you see the first invention of the percussion revolver, which paved its way for the self-contained ammunitions and the cartridges that we use today. Um, once you get into the 1880s, you have the development of smokeless powder. And in terms of military and hunting use, it really kind of runs over black powder and muzzleloaders. You have cartridges now, you have repeating arms, you have more than one shot, and it just makes it easier for everybody. And it's 
you have the industry to support it and you can get, you can order, you know, through a catalog at the general store, the cartridges and the guns that you need. So it really changes history and the industry of America and the, the whole world really. And then it really kind of dampens down the muzzleloading and the interest in muzzleloading. Um, but a lot of, as much as it changed things for a lot of people, it didn't, there were a lot of people that held on to their muzzleloaders because they were liable. They could, supply and run them themselves. So you see, even up through the Great Depression in the early 1900s, you see people still using their muzzleloaders because that's what they could afford and that's what they could use. Um, there are a lot Casting, of really- Do people cast their own-, their own Yep, you can cast balls, your own round I guess balls. back there, yeah, yeah cast your own yeah. round balls. And it, it's real simple. You can look up um, a, a bag mold is kind of the simplest form of that. It's like a pair of pliers, but it has a shaped end where the plier section would be to cast your balls. So with a campfire, a little ladle and some lead, like you see in the Patriot, I guess is probably something. Yep. That's right. Is that the one where he melts down the little, yep. he melts down the lead soldier. Little, yep. Yeah. Yep. Gotcha. And okay. then cast the ball, drops it out and that's your projectile. I mean, you can carry what you need to shoot in a little bag with you and you can, you can live on that. Yeah. It's kind of the, the original bushcraft survivalist um, firearm really. I might, this might be, I'm going off on a little tangent here, but what was the original caliber or diameter or barrel diameters? And so early on, they're really large bore calibers. Um, I think 69, 72, um, you have some 62 and even down into 58 were the real calibers and the bores. I'm not sure what that equates to um, as far as modern gauges. I don't know that off the top of my head, but they were really large. Um, and that was just the area and the game that you're working with. And it was, I think, kind of came down to, you know, the fabled stopping power. You had one shot, you wanted to make it count, and you were going to use as big of a ball as you could to do it. Um, as you kind of got into the American South, the Carolinas, Tennessee, um, Kentucky, you had uh, kind of the legendary squirrel rifle where you get down into uh, 22, 25, 32 calibers. And then as things progressed, you kind of get into the 40, 45. But the big bore stuff was really the original, you know, go-to way to do it. And do you know sort of the muzzle velocities that they were achieving back then? I, I mean, I don't I'm sure know. it progressed, obviously. But I know that it progressed, um, but I don't. That's a number I don't have off the top of my head. I'm curious. I'm because now you see these 50 caliber balls. You know, they look pretty yeah. big. I can't imagine shooting something. That's, <laughs> if, uh, yeah. You can take it out there, though, man. I'm telling you, you can shoot that way out there. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, well, let's keep moving. Yeah. Uh, we're, all right. So we're at percussion locks and moving through the 1800s. Sorry, I yeah, keep interrupting so, you. Oh, no, no, you're good. I'm, I'm happy to kind of get off the beaten path here. Um, so kind of talking about the early 1900s then with it, uh, you start to see muzzleloading shift from uh, a reliance uh, of hunting and survival to kind of a hobby thing. And that's where the NMLRA gets its start. Um, during the Depression, you had muzzleloading competitions spring up in different communities around the country where people would bring in and sponsor matches where the prizes were hams, turkeys, chunks of meat, canned goods. And we have documents from these matches where they were publicized saying, hey, you can come if you're a good shot, you can win your Christmas ham or your Thanksgiving turkey at one of these matches. And that was a big deal then. So you had people coming in from all over 
to compete for these prizes because at the time it was it wasn't necessarily easy to get those things so you have it have the muzzleloader kind of come back into the the thought process as a way to get some food and and that's where you start to get the competition as we think of today Um, i'd be happy to win a ham today yeah, wouldn't you? I mean, yeah. it's it's great. We, <laughs> I love you, him. <laughs> when you you're at a match all day and uh, you finish up around one or two, and they bring out the big cooler with all the meats in it, and you can go home and say, "Hey, look, you know, yeah, all yeah. the the time I've and the money I've spent on shooting and supplies and things, it's not worth nothing here." You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. That's good. Good stuff. All right, go ahead. And so, um, to kind of jump back in time a little bit, even after the invention of the original cartridges, which were black powder at the time. Um, you, in the late 1800s, you still had Henry Pope, the famous barrel maker, believing that the most accurate way to seed a bullet was through the muzzle because you know that it's indexed with that barrel. You don't have to worry about any changes seeding it through the breech. You know that it's indexed. You know that it's lined up. And you see that then in the early uh, founders of the NMLRA, that's kind of their, what they piggybacked off of was saying, well, Pope believed that seeding the bullet through the muzzle was still the most accurate way to do it. And we're going to continue trying to seat the entire charge through the muzzle and see how accurate we get it. And then from there, it didn't really change a whole lot. You started to, as we kind of spun up to the bicentennial and as interest in kind of post-war America got uh, more interested in American history, you had, you know, TV and things with the original Daniel Boone and all those original Disney shows kind of come out. You had a real interest in muzzleloading again, but things didn't change other than you started to have the companies and the industries around to support it. The companies um, like CVA, Dixie Gunworks started to pop up at that time and serve the interest of the muzzleloading enthusiast. And then in the 1980s, in 1985, muzzleloading took another huge change when night muzzleloaders invented the first modern inline muzzleloader. And you had inline muzzleloaders. They were kind of weird redhead stepchild or stepchildren of muzzleloading. We had inline flintlocks and like the Ferguson rifle, which is kind of a famous technological feat for the time. But this was the first modern inline muzzleloader. And it really changed the game for muzzleloading competitors and hunters. And it really bridged the gap between your traditional side lock muzzleloader and a modern centerfire rifle. And that kind of brings you. To where we are today, where you have a ton of muzzleloading manufacturers, small and large, now pushing to make muzzleloaders compete with and contend with a modern centerfire rifle. And you have the industry around it to support what I refer to as the race guns of muzzleloading, where the, the idea is just to make them as fast and as accurate as possible. And that brings you to today. Yeah. And so there's... And we're going to get into this a lot more with Luke, but yeah. there's, there is those, you, you still have those night muzzle loaders and stuff that aren't the race cars of today, but they're still very accurate and they're still as uh, in line type of muzzle loader, correct? Right. So you have the Knights, the CVAs, the traditions, the Thompson centers. Um, and forgive me if I'm mentioned, if I'm forgetting other manufacturers out there, but um, that kind of make the entry level, getting started, I can go to Cabela's and go to Bass Pro and I can get an inline muzzleloader to go compete, not necessarily compete, but I can go hunt in my, you know, state's hunting season to get a couple extra weeks. And then you get into 
really the top tier stuff, which is what, what Luke is building, what you have uh, Jess, Jeff Fisk building, who, and he, com- he competes at, at the NMRA competitions where you're in a few grand into one of these and it is just, you're still loading through the muzzle, but boy, after that, you don't really know the difference <laughs> in terms of accuracy and precision of these. I mean, it's just, it's bonkers what they're figuring out now. So let's talk about the different, like the, the, the Blackhorn 209s yeah. and, and that type of ignition system. Cause there's not only that, that inline, but there's also advancements that have been made in the inline, right? Right. So the, the night muzzleloaders at the time, I believe were still using just black powder. Um, and you could use Pyrodex or triple seven, but in, as a black powder substitute, but then um, you have the introduction from Western powders of the Blackhorn 209 where you're requiring a better manufacturing process, a tighter, you have a lot of tighter tolerances on the machining and the processes there where you're again, bridging that gap between the tolerances needed for black powder and for smokeless powder. And Blackhorn 209 is still a black powder substitute. And I believe it's considered that by all the rules and regulations, but you're starting to get some speeds like uh, all the custom guns and like CVA was talking this year with their um, Paramount HTR, where you can start to reach those smokeless velocities with that black powder substitute if it's built right. And you're using, you have all the right things together. You can start to really get out there. And yeah. so a lot of the modern inlines now, uh, I think you're hard pressed to find one that's using a black powder substitute unless you're picking it up secondhand or you're looking for one of those because of your state rules and regulations. I think most of them now are going for that black horn 209. It's a cleaner powder and it's a faster powder. And, you know, it's just another thing that shooters are looking for. Super cheap too. Yes. Compared yeah. to. Well, no, I was joking about that. <laughs> what is it? Like 50 bucks for a 10 ounce. Yes. Uh, if, 209. You can, you can find it for, um, I think the cheapest I found it for is 32. Um, the oh, shop that's near not me, bad. No. Um, the shop near me has it for um, 37. And if you can, I guess my reference as far as affordability is I can go into a store and just about any sporting chain and find it. Whereas black powder is cheap. I mean, you're talking around 20 bucks a pound, but the hazmat fees involved with shipping are really expensive and that really adds to it. So uh, Blackboard 209 is really nice because you can find it on the shelf just like you can uh, Pyrodex or 777. Yeah. So I don't have any trouble finding the triple seven and Pyrodex type stuff, but lately I haven't been able to find black horn 209. Nobody has been. And, uh, Hodgson came out and said a little bit ago that that was when, when they purchased black horn 209 last yeah. spring or, uh, last year sometime yeah. that Western powders had produced all of they were of it that they were going to make for 2020. And I think that, you know, all the social factors of COVID and the hunting seasons and people wanting to get out, really sapped up that supply but they say that we should start seeing it um within the next couple of weeks so i'm hoping that i'm going to start driving around and checking shops to see if yeah. can find it <laughs> yeah me too i've got a couple of jugs of it and that's really for load development for when i get yeah. this this arrowhead rifle because some states and this w- was what we talked about with go hunt some states you can't use this as and as we get into this more modern day stuff where we can use smokeless powders mm-hmm. some states don't allow that for hunting so you still have to use that smokeless powder substitute yeah or the the triple seven or the pyrodex or something something like that 
And I should say that um, as the association, as the NMRA, we don't cover any of the smokeless muzzleloaders. They're not permitted in our competitions and things. Really early on, there are a lot of safety concerns there that were just really impossible for us to, you know, really cover and be on top of all the time. So just for, uh, I'm not sure if it's not a legal thing, but just so everybody knows, you're not going to find much in the way of smokeless muzzleloaders with us. We cover everything else, but the smokeless stuff we leave to you guys. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. Don't leave it to me. This is all to me. <laughs> but the, so do you have anything uh, that you, else that you want to touch on as far as history? Cause I wanted to ask a couple questions about the competition stuff. You know, I don't think so. I, th- I mean, if anybody's interested in more of the history, you know, check out our website, nmlra.org. We're constantly publishing articles from the muzzle blast archives that covers a lot of the history of muzzleloaders and of muzzleloading history and American history and, and all that stuff. So there's a wealth of information there for anybody interested. So I think gotcha. that would pretty much cover <laughs> more than I could ever in, in one conversation. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, so are you guys, is there guys that are using the old match lock and the old wheel lock type stuff in the competition or can you still, find the parts for that to even build one how do, you can yes I, I think that's something that's interesting is uh, a lot of the muzzleloading world now you have the large industry people the large companies that handle kind of the um, you know easy to get into it pick it up off the shelf but then you have a massive community of builders machinists and engineers behind the scenes all working on making sure this stuff is still available i mean just like um, luke and jeff do with their muzzleloaders Um, and there's a rich history of that in the muzzleloading community kind of that self-reliance make it your own way to do it Uh, the match locks and the wheel locks really aren't very popular with our competitors and with our members there's people that make them and enjoy them as kind of a a challenge to figure out how to make, but because, or my theory is because it's, they weren't a big player in American history. They're not nearly as popular as the Flint locks and the percussion locks that we have today. Well, that makes total, makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very good. I I think we'll wrap it up there. That was an awesome, awesome little history lesson on, on muzzle loaders. Um, Unless there's anything else you want to talk on that we missed. I I don't think so. Okay. I think we'll wrap it up. Um, where can everybody find you before we started talking? You talked about a big Facebook group that you guys have, um, some social media stuff. Where does everybody find you if they're looking for info? So on Facebook, you can find us, um, under NMLRA or national muzzleloading rifle association. We have a really active group there as well with a few thousand members where you can ask questions, figure out how to get started. I mean, because we've been around so long, we have a lot of you know, individuals and a lot of small mom and pop shops that are more than willing to help people get started. So um, if you're wanting to learn more, I really encourage you to reach out to um, some of the people that we have linked there to help you out. Uh, on Instagram, you can find us as mu- at Muzzle Blasts and you can find the podcast there as well um, under the title Muzzle Blasts. Um, you can find all of everything that we do at nmlra.org. There's a lot because we've been around for so long. Um, but there is something for everybody there interested in muzzleloading. So the, the website at nmlra.org is the best place to go. Okay, cool. And I'll link all that stuff into the show notes for those that want to 
follow along or, or just look it up and, and check it out. But Ethan, I want to say thanks, man, for coming on. That was super cool. And, and I really appreciate you, you taking the time because there, there's a lot to be, I, like I said, I think we probably could have recorded for a long, long time. <laughs> yeah. I, I really wanted people just to have a good history overview of where the muzzleloader came from up until today's modern, modern stuff. Cause it's a, and you could do that with rifles. You could do that with yeah. bow, bow and arrows, you know, you could do it with so many things, but as far as rifles go, buzzle loaders were inspirational to the rifle, right? Until you started being able to find cases yeah. and, you know, contain that combustion that's going on in there. It was I mean, jam it down when, the barrel and light it, light yeah. the powder and let it rip, you know? When you look at firearms history, and I think I, I talk about it a lot, but it's tied to, the, to industrial history. I mean, because that's where the manufacturing started with with firearms uh, more than half of firearms history is muzzleloading history uh, yeah. you're you got several hundred years before you get into modern rifles so if you're interested in firearms history you got to check out muzzleloaders yeah definitely and last question this is and yeah. we probably touched on it but what were some of those major factors that that um changed the game in muzzleloading do you think throughout history what was some of the oh, biggest man. I think the, I think the Flint, I mean, I'm a big Flintlock fan. I, I love, I love the 1600s and forwards really is what I'm really into. I think the Flintlock, because that's where you start to see the encapsulated priming charge. And I mean, the, the cap lock, the percussion lock was a big thing. Um, late 1800s, even with the percussion muzzleloaders, you start getting into casting bullets where you start to figure out modern ballistics and things. Um, I mean, really, I mean, you got the Flint, the Flint percussion and the inline, I think are the real kind of watershed moments with things really. Yeah. And then the, the advent of the black corn 209 and really even modern black powder. I mean, I know Swiss still stays true and go do as well to some of those original recipes, but I think the powder now is a lot more pure than it was <laughs> back in the 1700s. <laughs> no doubt in my mind. So one thing we didn't cover, um, and this, I, I should have made a note, but let's talk about the projectiles. We, we yeah. talked about them a little bit from being back in the day when it was just a hand casted ball into what, what we've got now. And now there's some crazy looking projectiles out there. Yeah. Where, when did that development start? I think the, I, you can't quote me on this, but I think the, the conical, we, sometimes we refer to the late 1800s as a conical projectile, which is where you're starting to get into the bullets and you have grease groove and paper patch. And that's when you start to get into the black powder cartridge of the late 1800s. We have Quigley from Quigley down under Tom Selleck, that kind of firearm, um, and that's where it starts to really change up until that point. As far as I know, you were dealing with a, um, a ball of some size, whether that was a single round ball or you're casting lead shot, like you would see in a shotgun cartridge. Uh -huh. And that late 1800s, as you start getting into the cartridge rifles, you start to see the conicals. And then, you know, you start inventing the inline stuff in the eighties. And now you've got the Sabos and the plastic, you know, you've got just the copper, plated conicals now and you have the plastic tips and things and it just gets it gets much larger again you just kind of have that ignition point and then boom all of a sudden there's another industry involved with it and now you have uh, modern twist rates so to speak where uh, the flintlock that i'm building right now i think is a one in v8 so there's one twist and 48 inches of barrel and then you're 
you're getting into uh, 66 and 166 twist rates and you're getting into all that stuff and then you're getting down into now with the modern muzzle loaders we're getting twist rates very similar to uh, center fire rifles but you're still loading through the muzzle yeah. with your power one and 20 one and 24 kind of stuff yeah you know? so yeah well very good well again ethan thank you very much and i'll link all of that contact info into the show description and, and thanks a lot for coming on this is this is a fun project this muzzle loader march I'm excited to follow along with it. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, very good. Backcountry Rookies is proudly sponsored by Go Hunt Insider. Research the hunts that you want and get rid of the hunts you don't want. With Go Hunt Insider draw odds and strategy articles, you are able to research exactly what you want out of a hunt. Go Hunt Insider is your key ingredient to drawing a tag this season. Use the code Rookies when you become an Insider member and get $50 to spend in the Go Hunt gear shop. Elk 101's University of Elk Hunting. University of Elk Hunting provides you with immediate access to the most comprehensive and complete resource for increasing your elk hunting knowledge, confidence, and success. University of Elk Hunting now has all of those resources in the palm of your hand on a mobile app. Use the code ROOKIES and save $20 on your University of Elk Hunting membership today. Vortex Optics is an American-owned and veteran-owned company. Vortex Optics designs, engineers, produces, and distributes a complete line of premium sport optics, accessories, and apparel. They're dedicated to providing unrivaled customer service and exceptional quality. Vortex backs its products with the unconditional, transferable, lifetime VIP warranty. If it breaks, they fix it or replace it. And remember, you can use the code ROOKIES and save 20% off of Vortex apparel.